You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, you, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God, thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, so I want to welcome everyone here today who came, especially from the other churches. It's really awesome to have everyone here. Um, my name is Graham Barish. Um, I'm from Greenfield here. I'm a senior in high school. And I'm very happy and honored to get to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. today. He's someone that I've always looked up to, especially growing up of the huge impact that he's had. Um, he's usually celebrated and championed as a face of the civil rights movement. His influence is so, so great. It's one of the greatest out of anyone in human history, really, especially at the time with you know, television broadcasts and radio is just becoming a new innovation. He was able to reach millions of people all at once. But I think that we think of him as someone who is celebrated and championed, and we kind of forget that at the time, he was probably one of the most hated and disliked people in all of American history. I mean, even among his own civil rights supporters. In 1963, eight white clergymen wrote a public statement talking about King and his other supporters who demonstrated after his demonstration in uh, Birmingham in Alabama, they accused King of being an outsider to the movement. They said he used extreme measures that incited hatred and violence. They called his demonstrations unwise and untimely. They explained that racial issues need to be properly pursued in the courts. Well, at the time that this was written, King was in Birmingham jail after getting arrested during the demonstration. So he wrote them a letter back. The, the clergymen in their statement say that African Americans need to be patient as they go through the proper channels. That was part of the excerpt that Ryan read earlier. So as a response, King wrote a letter from Birmingham jail, and he, and he explained the four basic steps of any nonviolent campaign. First is an easy step in this situation. He says the first step is collecting the facts and actually determining whether or not the injustice exists. That's kind of easy at the time. In Birmingham, Alabama, stores along the streets had signs that were racist and discriminatory. He described as racially humiliating. So he explains the step, second step. This is a step that the clergyman had right, negotiation. But what the clergyman failed to mention in their letter was that they did negotiate. King was the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, 
and the conference uh, negotiated with different organizations all across the country, one of them being the Alabama Christian Mu Movement for Human Rights. They wrote him a letter talking about these signs and the racist signs. So, as in it being invited to help, he and his supporters negotiated. He negotiated with the Birmingham economic leaders at the time who promised that they would take down these signs. However, only very few signs were taken down and those that were, were put back soon, yet, soon after. In his fourth step, King describes the need for direct action. He agrees with the clergyman of the, important, of the importance of negotiation, but he says that negotiation is the, pur the purpose of negotiation is the direct action. There's no point in negotiating if you're gonna be ignored, if they're gonna put the signs up the next day again. You can't negotiate with somebody who's not willing to compromise, who's not willing to give up any power. So King describes this nonviolent direct action as a form of tension with them. He says that the tension creates a sense of urgency and importance, and so that they can't ignore it. It kind of forces them to address the issue. And he clarifies the difference between this constructive, nonviolent tension and, and violent tensions. A lot of the time when we think of a tension in a community, we think of a news headline saying, tensions rise, and that's not usually good news. So, I think that this type, of, this type of tension that King describes is something that we kind of got to learn to live, at, live with. A lot of people kind of want to ignore the tension, you know. King cites Socrates as believing that the tension of the mind was important in freeing us from the bondage of myths and half-truths. Well, he says we need these nonviolent gadflies to free us from prejudice and racism. I like the phrase. He uses the term gadflies. Well, if you know what a gadfly is, you've probably seen them if you've gone to a farm, you know, flying around the heads of the horses and the sheep. They're known for nipping away at them and annoying them so much that the term quite literally now means just someone who's annoying. If you say someone's a gadfly, you're just calling them annoying. So now, after hearing that, I kind of like to think of King and the Civil Rights Movement as just a little fly, you know, just little gadflies flying around the heads of the government and, you know, all the prejudices and segregation until they're forced to address the issue. You know, they're going to try to swat away. He creates a tension that they can't ignore. Well, the government relentlessly tried to swat them away. Now, if you've been paying attention, which I hope you have, because there is a quiz afterwards, <laughs> you'll notice I skipped a step. I went from the first step of identifying the facts and, get, and identifying discrimination, the second step of negotiation, and the fourth and final step is direct action. But in this direct action, King and his followers had to be ready to be swatted away. In the third step, King describes a process he calls self-purification. He and his followers have to ready themselves to put their bodies on the line, put themselves on the line. They had all been aware of the consequences at, uh, at the time. 
to do self-purification, King has to ask a very difficult question. Are you able to accept blows without retaliating? During the civil rights movement, activists were dragged away, they were beaten, they were thrown in prisons, they were assaulted by their own fellow Americans and by police. They had to do all of this without retaliating. They had to self-purify. Well, this question of being able to accept a blow without retaliating reminds me of that scripture from Matthew. In his Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount Jesus talks about when you're struck on the right cheek, offer them another blow. He commands us to take the blow without retaliating. And he even goes a step further by saying, after you receive the blow, to stick with our enemies and to love them despite it. In doing this, Jesus is almost describing the exact same type of tension that King does. He's almost literally saying that if you're swatted away, that it's not going to work. If you make them walk a mile, they're going to walk two right beside you. I think it's important to not fear this tension, but instead be the one who creates the tension, regardless of the consequences. Be ready to walk the miles. Be ready to give up your shirt and your coat be ready for that slug right to the face. Because when one gadfly is swatted away, you know that two more are going to come back to bite. Be persistent in your annoyances. Be that tension which frees our minds from the bondage of myths and half-truths. Be the tension that frees us from prejudice and racism, discrimination. Be those gadflies that nip away at injustice until you, you can be ignored no more. Never give up, because as Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it always bends toward justice. This is the word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today is from Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 12. Is not this the fast that I choose? To lose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your home? When you seek... See the naked to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. 
if you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continuously and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a, a watered garden, like a spring water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall, ri you shall raise your foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. The word of God. Good morning. My name is Lucy Ranke, and I go to Star Presbyterian Church, and I'm a senior at Ferndale High School. Uh, before we get into those verses, I'd like to begin this message with a land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that we, this church, are standing on stolen land. We are standing on the land of the Peoria, Anishinaabek, Potawatomi, and Nisiagua peoples, as well as other historical tribes in the area. I suggest that after this service, we all do our part to research those tribes and their histories and how we can support them. When I hear these verses from Isaiah chapter 58, I wonder which parts stood out to you all the most. I think as a whole, churches focus on the idea of sharing food with the hungry, providing the poor wanderer with shelter. We focus on helping houseless people with a warming shelter or the welcome in, like at my home church, Star. We have canned food drives, food pantries, and blessing boxes. We do our part. And I know these projects do a lot of good and that we should continue efforts to help our local communities. But I think there are other major concepts from these verses that we don't talk about quite as often within the church. One of these is based around the word oppressed. This is not to say that houseless people are not oppressed. Homelessness is a systemic issue that we should work to eradicate. But today, I'd like to focus on three main concepts that, at first glance, may seem entirely separate. Poverty, the climate crisis, and racism. These three ideas are really, really big ones, and we often view them as three big evils of our world that are not related whatsoever. And it can be really overwhelming to think about them at the same time, because how can we solve all of these issues? How do you choose what to focus your effort on? How when there is so much to be done? In reality, though, these issues are not as separate as many may believe. Here's an example. Climate change affects those who are poor before anyone else. This is because impoverished people cannot simply pack up their things and move somewhere else. They don't have the means to do so. The areas which are most impacted by climate change are areas with poor economies and a lack of resources. Think for a moment about the devastation that hurricanes and other natural disasters cause, such as those in Florida last year. Now think about the people who are most affected by that devastation. 
Almost always, those most affected are those who live in financial crisis. We can even see it in our own communities. The extreme weather that climate change causes is becoming more and more crazy, hurting those who cannot stay places to, to find places to stay in extreme cold and other extreme weathers like we've been seeing in our own state. Many people are already suffering from climate change, and yet with climate change we like to focus on polar bears, on the ice caps, when there are real people suffering right in front of us all the time. This is called intersectionality, and that's when more than one issue are connected. This idea of intersectionality also extends towards race. As we should all know by now, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. When we think of MLK, we all probably imagine something that we might have learned in elementary school, or most likely you think of his I have a dream speech. We like to think of MLK as just a civil rights activist, because that's what he was. He worked to end segregation and made so many advances for civil rights in America. But beyond that, he was a radical for both his time and today. He understood the connectedness of issues of race and poverty and was very passionate in working towards equitable reparations for black Americans. In 1967, when asked about why black Americans didn't just uplift their own place in society through hard work, like other groups that came to America did, King said this, I believe that we are to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. King uses the Emancipation Proclamation as a great example of this. Yes, slaves were freed officially, but they were given no land or any ways to support themselves financially. They were stopped by white Americans, especially in the South, whenever they tried to move upwards in society or join governments. At the same time, however, white settlers were encouraged to take land from indigenous peoples in the West. Then there were the effects of policies like segregation, and then redlining, and then the war on drugs and mass incarceration for nonviolent crimes, and so much more. This was a major issue in the 1960s, and it's still a problem now. It's actually kind of sad and disturbing when you listen to Martin Luther King's words from 1967 and realize just how much of them are true today. It is no wonder many black Americans seemingly have not lifted themselves up. Our entire nation is trying to stop them. Now this is a very general description of what is known as systemic racism. And if you are unfamiliar with that concept, I really suggest doing more research on it and listening to black and other minority voices about it rather than some white girl telling you what to think. Anti-racism work is individual and important, and we should all do our part to create a more equitable society in our country. So why is it so important that we remember how interconnected these issues are? Because we cannot solve one of these problems without acknowledging the effects they have of other areas of concern in our world. Isaiah 58 says, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. We cannot begin to untie the cords of the yoke until we have a full understanding of what the yoke even is. Let's go back to the land acknowledgement I made earlier. 
Not only are we on stolen land, the actual indigenous people of our entire country also suffer from economic and racial injustices that need to be addressed. The lack of resources, especially in many cases, basic necessities like water, make it hard for those living on reservations to stay healthy and safe. Aside from that, inflation hurts indigenous communities more than many other communities. If we view poverty as all the same across the board, no matter the circumstances, we are doing a disservice to those that are being systemically kept in poverty. We cannot move forward if we do not take the time to understand the intricate backgrounds that make all of these issues still prevalent today. Until we recognize that we are standing on stolen land, that climate change is affecting people large scale worldwide, that racism has played a huge role in creating national policies, and that all of these things are connected through history, we cannot move forward. Isaiah tells us that if we are to stop oppression, the light will rise in the darkness. God calls us to help those who are hurting, and we cannot do that if we are stagnant in our work for justice. I implore every one of you to not settle for lies that we tell ourselves, like, well, I'm not racist, or climate change isn't that big of a deal, or the biggest lie that we tell ourselves, I can't do anything to help. There are a million ways to support people struggling in our country. Even just the act of staying educated and becoming aware of how our government is treating these issues helps us all move forward. Each of us has a role in God's plan. Not every one of us is going to be Martin Luther King Jr. That's not how this works. But every one of us has a choice. A choice to listen to the needs of the oppressed and do what we can to help them. A choice to not ignore the deep history social justice has. And to understand why that history is so important. To fight for a future in the light instead of the darkness. Amen. <laughs>